Welcome, everyone. My name is Van Spina, and this is Wall Street Fintech, where we cover the tech, systems, and people that run Wall Street. I'm excited to announce we have a special guest today for our inaugural podcast episode. We'll be chatting with Jody Kashansky. Jody spent almost 30 years at BlackRock, where he served as the chief architect and head of the Aladdin product group. Aladdin is a portfolio and investment management software platform that powers BlackRock's $10 trillion asset management business as well as the businesses of other major financial institutions like Vanguard, MetLife, Freddie Mac, and even Japan's Government Pension Investment Fund. Today, Aladdin manages north of $20 trillion in total assets, and BlackRock's Technology Services Division reports revenues in excess of $1.4 billion. If Aladdin were a standalone public SaaS company, it would be among the largest in the world. Thanks for joining, and stay tuned for a fascinating conversation with Jody Kashansky. Well, Jody, thanks again for taking the time to jump on today. I'm really excited to talk a little bit about the story and development behind Aladdin, but as a tee up to that, it would be great if you could quickly give us a walkthrough of what led you to BlackRock in the first place and and what were you doing there before you began this 30-year fintech journey? Sure. And uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's fun to just talk about this stuff and and share, and hopefully people will get a few uh, insights from it. So what led me to BlackRock? Coming out of college, I say back in the 1900s, because it was back in the 1900s relative to today. Funny enough, I had a very strong interest in finance. Now, the notion of fintech wasn't so prevalent then. And I accepted a job at the time with Anderson Consulting, which is obviously now Accenture. And it was in the financial markets division of Anderson in New York. So I thought, this is great. I'll learn all this finance. It'll be better than finance because it's consulting, which means you'll move around and all that. And look, it was a good experience. I don't have anything negative to say about it, Anderson or Accenture, but what I would say is the business that they do is really consulting and you don't have as much opportunity to learn finance itself. And so after doing that for a couple of years, I felt it was the right time for me to look around. I interviewed at all the traditional places you'd imagine, Morgan Stanley, at the time Lehman Brothers, et cetera. And a, a buddy of mine from Anderson, his family knew of this guy who the world had heard a little bit about it, but not a lot. His name was Larry Fink. I didn't know anything about Larry Fink at the time. And he's like, hey, I had this job offer at this finance company, but he was specifically interested in consulting. So he said, I know you're more interested in finance. I'd like to pass your name along, but because my family knows Larry, I just need to make sure of one thing, which is you're not gonna be a job hopper. And so I said, okay, yeah, look, I'm really interested in finance. I promise I'll like stick with the job for a while. So at that point, he slid the resume across the table to the guy, Charlie Halleck, who became uh, my mentor. And I ended up as working uh, at BlackRock for, for 28 years. Now, of course, that guy ended up at six or eight different jobs over that same time frame. So he was quite the job hopper, but it was great. And this 28 years, I'd say what was exciting for me at a, at a super high level was just the opportunity to be constantly learning for the first I'd say three years, I had this weird sensation where I felt like I was learning every day, but it's almost like I was realizing how big the body of knowledge is in the world of finance. So it's almost like the rate uh, that I was gaining knowledge was slower than the rate at which I was realizing how big the body of knowledge was. So I had this very distinct feeling of falling backwards almost, like getting further from my goal of of understanding finance. But it was a great feeling because it, it, it sort of da- started dawning on me that, hey, I could actually make a full career here in the world of uh, finance. And that, I, I'd say, again, was, was sort of what 
kept me at BlackRock for so long and, and uh, the experience at a, at a high level is what I enjoyed the most is just being in a constantly learning environment. As I say, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know. I think you, you held up well enough on your, you probably could have gone a full 30 years before job hopping, but I guess 28 years <laughs> is close enough. Yeah, it's okay. Like it'll, it'll do in a pinch. When you first joined BlackRock, what was the nature of the beast then? Obviously now it's a multi-trillion dollar asset manager. What was BlackRock doing at the time? And when you first joined the organization, what were you focused on? So when I joined BlackRock, it had just changed its name from Blackstone Financial Management to BlackRock Financial Management, because even then it was one third owned by the Blackstone Group. And we were still in Blackstone space. The company was about 50 people. We were obviously much more traditional asset management versus alternatives or private equity and, and things of that nature. It's interesting. I'd say the firm was known as this almost like little, it was a little firm. We managed about $10 billion at the time. So 10 billion versus today, it's almost 10 trillion. So quite a difference. And we were known as a mortgage manager, even though we, we had a little bit of munis and we had some corporate bonds and obviously treasuries as, as hedges and whatnot, but it was, it was considered a very specialty firm. And I think, look, Larry Fink, Ralph Slostein, the, the CEO and president at the time, were well known in the industry because they had been on the sell side for so long and, and had long and successful careers there. But it was definitely known as a sort of specialty small firm. But one of the features of the firm that I think was distinctive at the time was that it was very focused on using this notion of analytics to better understand securities. So the story goes, six or eight founding partners said, well, it's kind of crazy because they observed that the buy side was buying these crazy things called CMOs, collateralized mortgage obligations, without really understanding it. They're using a simple yield table, right? To go, oh yeah, that, that one looks pretty good. But in reality, if you ran real Monte Carlo simulations and real analytics, you could see there were better securities and worse securities in a way that you could basically build a better portfolio. And so part of the founding of the firm, even at the time was, to use analytics to gain an advantage over other asset managers. So when I went in, when I first started in 1992, even then my job was I would come in at 6.30 in the morning. I, on the printer from our nightly batch job would be the, the risk reports for the day. And my job was literally to take the stack of paper off the printer, uh, put it on my desk. I had the previous day's risk, we called it the green package. It was a, a, the risk package. It had every portfolio in it. And I would literally put them next to each other and I would literally page by page, like flip yesterday's report and flip today's report and kind of compare literally with my eyeballs. And what I was trying to do, if you think about it, is I was trying to find bad analytics or bad positions or something wrong with the report. So if I saw something, I'd look at the duration of the treasury bond segment or the, the mortgage bond say, oh, wait, that looks off. My first thing was I would look in my notebook to say, wait a minute, did this change because there was a trade in the portfolio, right? So in some ways I was doing it super manually, but I was arguably doing data analytics. I was doing data science. I was trying to do anomaly detection, right? Uh, with my human eyeballs uh, and the like. So sometimes you'd find a problem, you'd fix a, fix a duration, fix a trade, rerun the report, print it out, stick it back in the list of reports. And then of course my job, because that's what an analyst does is I would take the stack of paper, I'd go to the photocopier, I'd pull out the white paper, I'd put in the green paper and I'd make my 10 copies that I would hand out to the head of the trading desk and the head of each of the various market segments. And so that was, that was kind of the nature of the firm. So, in the, so basically my job when I started was to do that, that risk reporting, to create the risk reports. Once I was done with that, the goal was to get that out by 8.30, 9 o'clock. But usually there was some cleanup afterwards and, and whatnot. 
But then I would basically program the computer in the, uh, in the late morning and afternoons. And it was that same risk reporting system that I was using as effectively a user to create the reports. Uh, I was also responsible for the risk reporting system. So that was kind of the nature of the firm at the time is it was very small. We all fit in, in literally one big room. There was a trading desk. I say a long trading desk, but not long by today's standards. It might've been 10 people on one side and 10 on the other. And that was kind of it. It was a small, quaint firm. And just to put a little bit of context behind it, you, you mentioned duration, for example, like what were some of the analytics that you were looking at at this time at BlackRock? What were the important metrics or factors or what was it that you were spending time trying to analyze? Sure. Uh, and certainly by today's standards, these are considered, uh, you know, very basic today, but like the duration, the convexity, you'd look at the OES, but those are the basic metrics. One of the key, key things, and, and, and even when I started at BlackRock, we were always doing this was that we would run the same models on the portfolio as the benchmark of the portfolio. So it, arguably everything you're doing, you're having to do times two or, or usually, right, benchmarks are pretty big. So arguably you're doing more than twice the work because the portfolio might have a few hundred positions, but there's a few thousand in the benchmark. But even then we would run the analytics for the whole portfolio and run the analytics for the entire benchmark so that we could create a real comparison a lot of that really was at the time duration and convexity. I mean, the basic metrics uh, over the years, of course, we added tons of uh, stuff like key rate durations and all, all sorts of mortgage treasury basis, prepayment durations, all these other kinds of, of metrics. And I'd say, look, over the years, we continue to innovate. And, and, and it's interesting, we call a lot of people, even myself, I, I fall into this like, oh, I call it the duration of risk measure. It's not really a risk measure. What it is, is it's measuring the sensitivity so, hey, if rates move like this, then your price will move like that. But it doesn't tell you the probability that rates will move a certain way, right? It also doesn't tell you the relationship of an asset or part of the yield curve on other assets and parts of the yield curve. In other words, the, the world is, is sort of this much more complicated interrelationship of all of these different, I'll call them factors. And so really over the years, we spent years, of course, building those kinds of models as well. A lot of the focus, as you can imagine, at least initially, was on fixed income. And so the analytics themselves grew in complexity and in sort of comprehensiveness over time. But certainly in those early days, it was really duration and convexity. Again, the main thing I'd say we did is we, we actually ran it. Maybe worth mentioning, like in the early days, a lot of people would look at modified duration. Well, we were looking at effective duration. I mean, we were running a whole Monte Carlo simulation with prepayment models to actually measure that, that negative convexity that was involved in those securities. So in many ways, in those days, that was really unusual, right? Everybody said, oh, the modified duration is this, or the weighted average life is that. Well, those were very nominal measures that you had to input a prepayment assumption rather than using a model. So at the time it was advanced. Nowadays, I'd say that's considered state of the practice, or actually it's considered basic really. But in those days, that was more advanced. So back in the, the late 90s, you're showing up to the office at 6.30 every day in the morning and manually comparing the analytics from yesterday against the analytics for today. When did that turn into the inspiration for Aladdin? How did that sort of initial yep. kernel or pain point become a software system? Yeah, so good question. Just word of timeline. So that was sort of early 90s, actually. And so what really happened is that, yeah, it's sort of interesting, a, a, a series of events. Similar to the 2008 crisis, there was a sudden change in rates in 1994. And what happened was a lot of the same things, same kinds of things happened. It wasn't subprime related, but there were a lot of broker dealers that had these mortgage backed securities, CMOs, that 
got really hammered economically. They got really hurt economically with this change in rates. And so one of those broker dealers was called Kidder Peabody. It was a, a broker dealer that sort of like Lehman went under in 2008. Well, Kidder Peabody basically went under in, in 1994. GE owned Kidder Peabody and they hired BlackRock to effectively help them unwind the portfolio. And what's interesting about that is that if you think about the traditional asset management assignment, a client says, here's my money. And BlackRock says, great, we'll manage it until you fire us or whatever. And we'll manage it all on an indefinite basis. This was a different assignment. This was, hey, manage this portfolio down to zero. And it was just sell the positions over time. There were a lot of organizations that were happy to, to bid on the plat, bid on the, the Kidder portfolio, but they were giving like fire sell prices, right? So BlackRock said, hey, look to, to GE, let us effectively be your asset manager. We'll wind the portfolio down in an orderly fashion. We'll sell piece by piece at the best value we can. But what's interesting about that is it it really brought us out. It, it made us use our platform and our technology and our analytics in very different ways. And it made us realize that like literally in a matter of four days, we reconfigured the system to show completely different metrics. Now they were all derived from the core analytics. It's like two-year equivalents and 10-year equivalents and stuff like that, which is really a derivation of, of duration and convexity. But it, it sort of showed us that the platform was much more flexible than we had really contemplated that it could be. Turns out that assignment was very successful. GE felt like they got a heck of a lot more return than if they had done a fire sale. And so they were very happy with the result. And in fact, what they did is they said, the analytics that we got when you guys were managing that Kidder portfolio were so much better than we ever had when even from Kidder, from their own company. And you guys turned that around in like three days. You were able to show us a view of our portfolio we'd never seen before. Can you help us understand what's happening in some of our other financial portfolios? So they were insurance companies, other consu consumer related debt kinds of things. And so suddenly we were like, okay, and it, it was literally almost like reverse inquiry, but we started quoting them a price and they were like, sure, we'll pay that. And so suddenly we became in a business where we were just providing analytics, not even asset management and providing a view to, to in this case, GE as our, our, as our very first risk, risk only client, no longer being an asset manager. And so, that is what spawned the first sort of business that is analytics. Nowadays, we call it Aladdin, but the notion is that, that they started hiring us for that. Over time, we accumulated a number of other clients. So one of the clients in this risk space was Freddie Mac. I believe it's 1996. So this was a couple of years later, we had acquired Freddie Mac as a client. We were running their entire balance sheet through our analytics and providing them analytics views of their portfolio. So by 1998, they came to us and said, hey, we really like the analytics you guys provide, but we need it more than monthly. They sort of asked us, since you guys provide this to yourselves for every one of your portfolios every single day, how can we get the same thing? And we said, well, the problem, Freddie Mac, that you have is that after month end, it takes you guys two weeks to get us the data for month end. Meaning you're closing your books, you're running this analysis, you're, you're merging your derivative spreadsheet with your debt system, with the mortgage system to just get us all of that data. And it takes you two weeks. So we don't know how to produce a daily report when it takes you two weeks to get us the data. And they said, well, okay, well, how do you do it for yourself? And we said, I don't know. We kind of have this system again, didn't even have a name at the time. And it, it's a, it's where we capture every trade every single day. That system maintains its own positions. And as a result, like we have access to the positions anytime we want them. And they said, great, we'll take it. 
that we'll take that system. And so again, it was interesting how the analytics was what they were seeking, but to get access to that timely data, they needed the, I'll call the operational aspects of, again, what today we call Aladdin, it didn't really have a, a name at the time. And so as we thought about, well, do we really want to go into this business of being a technology provider? It's one thing to provide analytics and that's cool, but do we really want to be a provider of technology to, to other organizations? We did a lot of soul searching. Our going in business thesis was that we said, okay, yeah, we'll do it. And the reason is that we felt at the time, we felt 75% of what a potential client of this platform would want, BlackRock would also want. So we thought, well, this makes sense. We're going to get paid to build out capabilities that BlackRock's going to want anyway. And it's sort of funny. So we went to Larry Fink, and this is a very little told part of the story. But Charlie Halleck that I mentioned, he, myself, and Rob Goldstein went to see Larry with our business proposal. And we said, look, we, we think this is an opportunity. We think this is a 75, there's going to be a 75% overlap. And Larry said, okay, listen, guys, you can do this with one stipulation, which is that if I ever hear of any complaints about late delivery of software from my own trading desk, I'm going to shut that down right away. So he, he was okay with it, but it was like the caveat was just don't mess with my, don't mess with my own trading desk here. And so obviously this has turned into a much bigger business. He's, he's now is a huge, and, and look, he's always been a, a fan. And I think it's a bit of the, the way that Larry manages things is like, look, you, you can certainly be entrepreneurial, uh, but just don't mess up other businesses. Right. But anyway, so after doing all that analysis, we decided to move forward with the business. And, and what I'd say, interestingly enough, is that the overlap is probably more like 95%. So if anything, our, our estimate was too low, which is to say that, that a big thesis of the, the idea of, of going into and seeking a, a business, which again, today is known as LED, was that the industry really needs a solution for managing all of this stuff, everything from risk management to order management to operations to accounting to reconciliations to all those control functions to client reporting all of all of performance attribution to all of those things and so that thesis has certainly played out over the long term but anyway that's that's kind of how the the platform started it, it's really interesting story when you think about I mean, the original version of this monthly batch processing of analytics feels a little bit more like a consulting type relationship and then this transition from when, when Freddie Mac wanted to see this type of analysis on a daily basis, what did you have to do or build to enable them to have that type of view? Sort of intrinsically makes sense thinking, okay, BlackRock has the traders, you're sitting in the same room with them. I could see how you would capture their trade data and pipe it into this system. But what did you have to do to enable that for outside client that was you know, trading portfolios away from your own financial institution? Yeah, it's a great question and and you're sort of tapping into a lot of the soul searching that we had to do but at the end of the day when you really look back at what and, and by the way one, one interesting thing so the name aladdin was actually created by freddie mac hmm. so freddie mac had a naming contest now interestingly enough the, the naming contest technically said hey we want to name the project to implement the blackrock trading system huh and so someone came up with an acronym. I actually don't know the name of the person who did it, but it stands for Asset Liability and Debt Derivative Investment Network. So A Aladdin. That's awesome. So anyway, A L A D D I N. 
And so anyway, so that's just a funny side story. But what I'd say is that if you look back at what Aladdin's capabilities were, in, in like being honest, like back in, in this is this is now 1998. If you go back to 1992, when I started with BlackRock, we would get an extract of positions every day out of the accounting system, which wasn't part of Aladdin. It was a SunGuard product. We would load those positions into a database. We would run bond level analytics. And then the, the reporting system that I was responsible for would sort of stitch those together. It would grab the positions from the, from the accounting position database, grab the security level analytics, and it would marry them together and then write a report. That was it. In fact, we had a quote unquote trading system, but at that time, literally a trader would type in a trade, they'd hit save, actually what they'd hit, they'd hit print. And what would happen is it would save that trade into a file. It wasn't even saving it in a database and it would come off the printer, right? And, and that was it. And, and so then what would happen is the, the operations people would take, the, the trader would sign the ticket, they'd put it in a basket. The operations person would take the ticket They'd call up, oh, you did a trade with Solomon Brothers. They'd call up Solomon Brothers and go, hey, we want to confirm that, that Keith did a trade with you to buy 50 million two-year notes, da, 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 da. They would sign the ticket. They would put it in the next basket, right? And so then what would happen is the accounting people would take the ticket. They would type it into the accounting system. They'd put it in the next basket. And then at the end of the day, at, at like 5.30, I would take the stack of tickets and I would literally handwrite every ticket in my notebook. And then I would put it in the next basket and somebody would literally put them in a filing drawer and it was filed by, by portfolio and by ticket number. And that was like, that was the entire trading system capability of Aladdin. I mean, there wasn't any technology except to be able to print a ticket. Right. And so, yes. Okay. So you fast forward to 19, that was 1992. Certainly by the time we got to 1998, when, when we were starting to implement Freddie Mac, the transactions were stored in a database. What we realized along the way was that the chance of somebody typing it in incorrectly into the accounting system was pretty high. And so when the trader would type it in, we would store it in a database and we would automatically adjust our positions. But that was probably 1994 or so. And so my point is that like, it wasn't until then that Aladdin actually could track a position. It was because prior to that, it was just taking nightly extracts from the accounting system. So by the, even when you fast forward to 1998, um, again, we were good at risk. We could track positions, but that was kind of about it. So Freddie Mac came in and said, look, we want to buy this and we're willing to pay you a lot of money, but you got to build a system to do mortgage-backed securities, mortgage allocations, which I won't bore you with, but is an incredibly complicated process. In fact, yeah, anyway, I'll, there's a whole story there. But anyway, so we had to build a platform to do that. They said, what we want, if we're going to put our debt, the Freddie Mac debt issuance on the platform, you need to build a payment processing capability. So we, we didn't even do any of that. Like we, we had all these securities and positions, but we never calculated coupon payments on treasury bonds, even the simplest thing for mortgage backed securities or any of those things. So we had a ton of building to do to get Freddie Mac over the line in terms of what they wanted to buy. And again, what ended up happening, of course, those capabilities became very foundational for the next set of clients. And those clients had their own sets of requirements, whether it was solving for multi-currency or solving for order management or solving for equity risk model. Like every client kind of came with some new sets of requirements because each client kind of helped us push out the envelope of the capabilities that Aladdin was, was able to do. But certainly in the early days, like 
look, it, it's not magic. Um, if anything, by the way, I would tell you that the, that arguably the magic of Aladdin isn't the technology. I mean, every single thing in Aladdin you can look at and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. There's nothing, you know, cosmic there. But I would say that the magic of Aladdin was the fact that management of BlackRock continued to invest year in and year out. They never had a year where they said, let's pull back. The commitment to building it all on the same platform and continually, like, and there's no question, we made tons of technology mistakes, strategic mistakes. I mean, there's no way that it was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But the commitment to the business, the commitment to the platform is, is really, I would argue, what the magic really was. And that's really what created Aladdin itself. Were there any points along this earlier journey where when Freddie Mac, for example, is asking you to, to build in payment processing and you guys weren't doing that previously, thinking that, hey, maybe this is more pain than it's worth. This is outside of our core asset management business. This is too hard, too complicated. Were there any times where your team was second guessing the decision as to whether this even made sense to do for the company? The answer is absolutely 100% yes. And, and on many, many occasions. When Freddie Mac actually signed, they said, they didn't say, we want you to build a mortgage back securities allocation processing. We want you to buy this company because we think they have the best mortgage allocation capability out there. So we were like, oh, we'd really kind of rather build it ourselves, but Freddie Mac, they're going to pay us a good amount of money. Okay, fine. We'll, we'll go buy them. What company was that? It was called, well, the name of the product was called MBS Expert. They ultimately got acquired, by the way, by ADP. But what ended up happening is it turns out that, which I feel like in many ways it ended up being better for us, even though they were more advanced in mortgage allocations for sure. But what happened is their, their biggest client for MBS Expert was Fannie Mae. And it's like Coke and Pepsi. So their contracts had specific stipulations that Freddie Mac was not allowed to be a client. So in many ways, we couldn't acquire them because we, our whole goal was to get Freddie Mac to be able to use that technology. Now, what we ended up doing, which again, I think ended up being a better result, particularly long-term, is we did end up fulfilling that obligation by really building out that capability within the platform. But that's where we, we had some business questions. But let, let me give you another example. For many years, BlackRock said, what, like equities aren't prominent enough in our portfolio to build an equity risk model. So we said, ah, it doesn't make sense, too hard. We don't want to maintain it, to your point. And so we rented Barra. We basically paid Barra licensing fees. And over the years, there were many clients where the client would use Barra, but inside of Aladdin. So they'd use our risk reporting systems, but all the calculations were actually behind the scenes for the equity portions were Barra numbers. Now look, life changes, right? When, we, when BlackRock uh, took over BGI, where there was suddenly like a ginormous amount of equities, and BGI being very analytical, very quantitative, they had the skill set. They had the people that could build the risk model. That's when we said, okay, let's build our own. It now makes sense to do it, particularly since the combined license fees that we're paying to borrow is such that we, we're better off just building our own. So look, the, the business constantly evolved. And look, likewise, order management, uh, we built for our third Aladdin client, we actually fourth Aladdin client. We built a fixed income, which you could say it was an order management system, meaning that here's a desire to do a trade, meaning an order. Here's a capability to convert that order into an actual execution and all that. But it was very fixed income centric. Even when BlackRock acquired Malim in 2006, which Malim suddenly meant that more than half the revenue of the firm was coming from equities, we were still like, oh, we don't really want to build an OMS 
that's an equity OMS because they're they're too cheap. They're a dime a dozen. We're not going to add any value there. And so we leveraged third-party systems, both Advent systems, but also a platform that that was called McGregor, which I think is now owned by I forget who owns it. Anyway, so so we leveraged third-party systems. And again, when BGI came along, and suddenly there was massive amounts of trading that in equities and program trading and quantitative trading, not quite statar, but but super high volumes that could not be handled by existing third-party equity OMSs, we said, all right, time to actually invest. And we really developed a, a very world-class equity capability when the time was right. But if you think about it, I mean, that was, we probably released that OMS really in 2012. We really started trading equities in 2005. In 2006, we acquired Malim. It was a lot, but 2006 to 2012, it was like, eh, third-party systems for that part of our business are working. I don't really want to invest. So, and I look, I could quote many other examples as well, prepayment models and, and all sorts of things. So I do think that there is the notion that you have to build things when the time is right and you don't necessarily build things too far ahead of time. When you think about where Aladdin started versus what it is today, I think I doubt that that scope was in everybody's mind from the beginning. Were there any decisions from an architecture or platform perspective that you think enabled Aladdin to scale both across functionality and asset class as it has? Or was this something that you all just figured out over time when things like equity trading became more important to the business? A couple of interesting points I'll throw out there. So first of all, I think that the, the start of Aladdin platform was lucky in that it started off with mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities are weird. Uh, they've got crazy things like factors. They require deep analytics with a lot of compute uh, resources. And because the founding of the platform was in that context, it felt like equities were much easier. Now, in fairness, equities has their own stress points. Uh, the trading volumes, for example, can be massive compared to fixed income. So it has different stress points. There's no question. And that's what, look, that's what kept us out of the OMS world for a while. But I do think that it's dramatically harder, if not impossible, if you start with an equity system, which a lot of systems do start with, and then you try to go into fixed income products and, 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 and even currency, it can get quite dicey. And so I feel like the roots of the system, we got a little bit lucky. The other, the other interesting little story that I'll share is when we took over Malim, Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, previous to that, BlackRock was really a New York-based firm. We were thinking about opening a London office. We were we had a partnership actually with a firm in Japan, but we really were a US-centric firm. We were mostly institutional as opposed to mutual funds. So we were selling more, we had mutual funds, but like we were more institutionally centric in our mindset and certainly deeply fixed income. So along comes Malim and suddenly we had major offices in Japan and in Australia, certainly in London, and we became very global. And it's interesting, we faced a fairly urgent challenge, which was, uh, or we faced an urgent question, which was, are we going to really continue down this one single instance of Aladdin path? And because can we actually get one system literally, truly globally working? And I'll tell you that it's interesting. I, I, I will take some credit for this. And certainly look, Aladdin is, has been the work product of thousands of people over decades, plural. So, but this one I will take credit for with a, a, a colleague named Scott Condren. 
where our boss at the time, Charlie said, okay, well, we have to have one instance of Aladdin in London. We're going to have one instance of Aladdin in New York. We're going to have one instance of Aladdin in Tokyo and maybe even one instance in Australia. Because he's like, I just don't see how it's possible for us to have truly one giant global system that could handle all the volume of the entire company. And so Scott Condren and I really wanted to fulfill this vision of Aladdin as a single instance platform that could handle this global volume. And we went to Charlie together and we said, you know what, Charlie, you got to give us a chance. Let us see if we can truly build that global platform that can handle all those volumes, can take care of all those those idiosyncrasies of these market specific kinds of factors that have to be embedded. Let us see if we can build it. And look, it certainly took us a few years, but again, he, it wasn't hard to convince him by the way. It was, but he, he sort of thought this, this is not really going to work, but we were able to really pull it off because of a lot of the underlying architecture that Aladdin, even at, even in the early nineties, by the way, in hindsight had the capabilities to do these kinds of things. Now we had to refactor a lot of things and, and make it work. Uh, but that was uh, sort of a moment where we we had to make that decision. And I think we would all say that we're pretty glad that that decision was made and we did not break up Aladdin and have multiple instances for for BlackRock. And what is the the core of the system? Is it keeping the count of each security or or what sits at the heart of this system that was kept consistent in these different markets? It's interesting. I mean, I would say that Aladdin in some ways is super simple. It's just the discipline to continue with what I'm about to say is what's hard. So. The whole spiritual, it's not literally true, but it's spiritually true, is the notion of there has to be one database, one system, and one business process that sits on top of all of those things. And so whether it's analytics or uh, reconciliation or, and it was like whatever disparate things you can imagine, the whole idea was build it all into one highly integrated system where you're not creating multiple copies of positions and transactions and portfolios and users and, and, and all of these different things, right? Because so much, and look, this is a big part of the sales pitch of Aladdin, but it turns out that it, it is true in Aladdin in that, and it's true if you're not in Aladdin, is that a lot, of, a lot of technology teams spend all their time reconciling between many systems. You have a system for risk, a separate system for for accounting, a separate system where you extract all that data and you do reconciliation, maybe in a spreadsheet or check-free recon or some other system. You have another system for derivatives because the system can't handle that. And then you got to export all that to MBS Expert to get your mortgage allocations. Like, and it's just endless, right? So, so many technology teams spend their time just trying to get these systems to talk to each other and reconciling and fixing the issues between those. So the whole philosophy of Aladdin was, let's build it all in one database. So if you're running risk, you're using the same security master as if you're trading it and, and, and creating orders off of it and all that. But likewise, portfolios and users and, and prices and just all of those things. And again, some of the challenges were, how do you make what originated as a fixed income system? How do you make it do swaps in the right way? How do you make it do equities in the right way? How do you make it do all of these different kinds of asset classes? And look, it's a forever effort. I mean, Aladdin, I would say, and I, I would guess the people in Aladdin obviously haven't been there in, in three years, but but I would I would tell you that Aladdin is also an aspiration, meaning that there's more to do. I mean, I know today, for example, Aladdin team is focused, among other things, on, on integrating alternatives, private equity and real estate and private credit and all of those things. There are ways they're doing it um, today, but I'll tell you, there's an ongoing amount of work that can be done to make it even more fully featured and make it feel more native to the platform. 
And look, equities initially, I mean, it was when I say initially, it was probably for probably 10 years, equity, people using Aladdin for equities were like, yeah, it's kind of cool, except I don't like that it says face amount on my report because it really should say shares, right? So it was like, it didn't feel great, right? Nowadays, equities feel, feels very native. It, it talks the language of equities and, and orders and, and all that. So all these things take long efforts. And that's why, again, I say that that if there's real magic to Aladdin, again, I really do believe that it's it's the management commitment to the platform that has allowed it to be created. Yeah, I think finance is interesting in how intertwined the technology and the operations are, especially when you're talking about something like Aladdin that's of this scale. As the system evolved, as BlackRock evolved, as your own operations evolved, but you were still servicing these external clients, which are probably somewhat opinionated. Everybody in Wall Street thinks that they're the smartest and they do things the best way. Was that ever a challenge in either building or adapting the product in terms of how other firms organize themselves operationally or whether there were academic differences in how they viewed some certain risk factor or something like that? Yeah. So it's interesting. The answer is yes. It was both uh, a challenge and an opportunity one of the key things, even in 1998, when we said, hey, we're really going to go into this business with originally that Freddie Mac, is that we said one advantage that we think we'll have is we are a quote unquote user and a provider. So it's the user slash provider model. And therefore, if a client came to us with a request or if BlackRock came to us with a request, then we could validate that internally. We didn't have to go, oh, Mr. Client, can you tell me the specification for that? Because we had people actually doing it and trading those same products internally. Um, and likewise, look, the BlackRock, particularly nowadays being the world's largest asset manager, but even then BlackRock was doing always doing fairly, I'll say leading edge, maybe not cutting edge, but leading edge types of investing. And so a lot of ideas came from BlackRock. But to your point, there's a lot of clients who came with their own ideas, their own stress points in, in the process. And they said, no, we needed this and we need to do it this way. And I could tell you tons of those stories where our clients had great ideas, where even BlackRock was like, yeah, we don't need that. We don't need that. And as soon as we built it for the external client, BlackRock was like, wow, that's amazing. We love that, right? So, so I'd say that the user provider model w- was really a huge opportunity, uh, but it was also a challenge to manage in that you're all certainly balancing out like the needs of external clients versus BlackRock's internal needs. BlackRock obviously been growing uh, super fast over over multiple decades and, and all that. So it was always kind of a rub. Um, but at the same time, I think part of the value proposition was bringing together many different organizational views. And look, what we ultimately did in the platform is we 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 it's a balance between, on the one hand, being a bit prescriptive to clients, like hey, if you're going to be in the trading markets you're going to book a trade. You're then going to confirm the trade and then you're going to route that trade out. And here's how it works on the system. It's sort of prescriptive, but we also had to put a lot of flexibility in the system. So some organizations say, okay, that's fine, but I need this set of people to confirm the derivatives because they're derivative experts. And these other people are just going to confirm the really vanilla stuff because it's really basic or whatever. So they're going to have their own workflow. So we had to both be prescriptive, but at the same time, install as much flexibility and configurability in the system as we could. And so that's kind of how I'd say that we ultimately addressed it. And look, I'd say over the last probably eight or 10 years, there's been more of a push towards APIs to enable clients to access various parts of the system. Now, now it's interesting, I would argue, and this is like not necessarily what BlackRock would say, but I would say that while the API strategy has been helpful 
in reality, I'd say that a lot of clients really just want the platform to work for them. They don't necessarily want to be out coding their own software. And so I'd say there's been uptake of the APIs or there was when I was at the firm, but I'd say that clients still just want it to work right. And they, they want it to work in a way that's consistent with industry practice. And so there's, there's always this balance that you're always striking as a, as a user and provider of a platform. You, you said that at the outset, Larry Fink was worried that you all would start shipping software slowly for his internal trading teams or, or slowing up the sort of BlackRock. Well, yeah, they, he thought we would be building it for external clients because we were getting this external revenue yep. and ignoring his internal guys, right? Was there ever a concern on the other side of that, that, hey, we're building really good software for our competitors in the market? And I think the, the counter example to BlackRock and Aladdin would be something like Goldman and SecDB, where for a long time was viewed as sort of a, a secret sauce. How do you think about that? Yeah, so the answer is absolutely, particularly in the early days, I'd say that that issue sort of reared up in a prominent way a couple times over the first, say, 10 years of, of Aladdin as a business. And there were those who said, look, Aladdin is, is giving us competitive advantages. It's allowing us to operate in a more cost-effective way. It's allowing us more consistent view of our portfolio and, and, and all that. There's a couple of things I'd say, though. I mean, obviously, the, the, the counterbalance to that is that obviously there's there's revenue and it allows BlackRock as a firm to continue to invest in the platform financially, which is true. In addition to that, I'd say that it goes both ways, which is BlackRock is harvesting a lot of great ideas from clients and embedding them in Aladdin that BlackRock itself is ultimately benefiting from. If BlackRock itself, which it does, owns that that effectively industry utility, Aladdin, isn't that better than if somebody else were to to do that? And so the net result of all those discussions consistently came out and said, yes, there may be some of this rub, but at the same time, the benefits outweigh that potential risk that we're sort of arming the enemy. And so that discussion happened. Now, by the way, it goes the other way too. There are many, most clients, I don't know about most, some number of clients also harbor a concern like, hey, aren't you guys just building this just for BlackRock? And am I going to get any attention as an external client? And are you going to build for me and all of that stuff? And so, look, we also have to convince clients or had to convince clients back in the day that Aladdin is a real business. It is something that BlackRock itself is committed to. And that means you have to service clients properly. You have to listen to clients. You have to consider what they're saying and build stuff into the platform. Now, at the same time, I mean, I would say that we always told clients like, look, we're not in the custom dev business. If you want something super custom dev, that's just not what this platform is about. If you have some great idea that is going to propel the platform forward for all clients, inclusive of BlackRock, then that's something we want to talk about. We want to talk about building. We want to prioritize and, and get that out there. And so that was very much the mindset. And look, I think clients had to sign on for that mindset for them to be interested. And look, some didn't. I mean, there were plenty of clients who said, I'm a little bit too concerned about competitive concerns on the other side. Like, hey, I'm big firm XYZ. I'm a little concerned that BlackRock's peeking over the wall. And I can tell you, no one ever did that. That is just not... That's just not each client, by the way, is in separate physical databases, in many cases in separate data centers. It's nowadays all on the cloud anyway. So separate VMs and, and all that physical separation as, as well as logical separation. One of the, the crazy things about Aladdin or BlackRock technology services more broadly is that on its own is probably one of the most successful stories of a software company being built. It's got $1.5 billion of revenue, something like that. Do you think it would have been possible to build Aladdin outside of BlackRock? Look, obviously it's 
I think it was such a confluence of just factors and luck and timing and all that that, that allowed that to happen. But it, there were just huge benefits that accrued from being part of an asset manager. I, I mentioned the user provider model. Again, that was huge. I think that in many ways, having this vision of we're going to build it all in one platform. Whenever we looked at a potential acquisition, it was always like, can we integrate this into Aladdin in a really seamless native way? And if the answer was, well, we're going to end up having to rebuild most of it, then it was like, is it really worth the acquisition? And look, in some cases, it could be just client acquisition or business acquisition can make sense. But in many cases, we would end up opting. We'd say, let's just build it. It's just going to end up being better for us. And so I would say that building it outside, if you think about the, the classic model today of a startup getting funding from maybe starts off with angel investors and then becomes VC and then PE and all that, each of those investors kind of wants their return more quickly. And so I would say that, that BlackRock's horizon was always like 10 years. It was never two years or three years or five years. And if you think about the, an asset manager where the asset management business itself being profitable, we never had to say, oh, we, in, fact, in fact, we were very careful never to measure the profitability of the Aladdin business. Funny enough, we never, we, had, we knew the revenue, but that we never counted shadow revenue from BlackRock as the biggest client of Aladdin, if you want to think of it that way. We literally never, and that's probably still true today. I don't think there's any shadow revenue that's captured. And so it allowed us to focus on top line growth only, but also because there's no pressure, like, oh, we have to get certain margins or we have to get certain revenue growth, show certain revenue growth, or we're trying to get some multiple, then it allowed everyone to say, you know what, we're going to focus on fulfilling the vision of everything being on one platform. And again, like I said, we made many mistakes. But having being part of an asset manager and again, leveraging that user provider model and all that was a huge advantage that I think would be very difficult to do in today's environment as a more traditional startup. Do you think that the for the more traditional startups that are trying to build products in this space that aren't within an asset manager, what advice do you have for those types of entrepreneurs if it's a worthwhile endeavor at all? Boy, I don't know. I mean, I would say... It's sort of funny. We used to joke that if we knew how hard it would be to do the Aladdin business, we, we might not have ever gone into it. <laughs> but, but I would say that even to this day, I fundamentally believe in the vision that Aladdin was and is trying to aspire to, which is a single platform to do all the things that, that I'll call it an asset manager or someone managing assets needs. And again, it's an aspiration. It's not a, the journey's not even to this day complete. But I think that for a startup, I think you have to have a sense of vision about what you want to do. And I think a lot of, I, I do feel like a lot of startups start off with a very narrow vision and they say, I just want to get to some revenue point and then I'm going to sell to the next guy or, or, or whatnot. And I think that, look, the result of that, which we see in the marketplace is a very splintered set of financial technology and this applies in other marketplaces of course as well but we see a lot of these spot solutions to spot problems and i would love to see someone do a startup and say i have this grand vision that's a 20-year vision and it's sort of scary to say 20 years so you can just say it's a long-term vision but like it's beyond the normal horizon that a lot of investors seek and i'd say that in addition to having that vision, it strikes me that you'd want to find a, a financial partner who could share in that vision and have that strong sense of hands on that. 
If I think back to Aladdin, part of our goal was to get enough revenue to cover the expenses of the technology team. And it took us probably five years to get to that point. But then, then we did an acquisition. All of a sudden, like, ah, we got a big, a big technology spend again. That means we have to grow Aladdin. And then, then we bought BGI. Right? Oh, we got to grow Aladdin again. So in some ways, again, we had very strong financial partner in BlackRock, if you want to think of it that way. So I'd say, look, try to find a very strong financial backer and, and have a long-term sense of vision if you want to try to build that enterprise platform uh, and bring that kind of vision to the world. Moving past Aladdin, what either pain points or opportunities or technologies in the fintech world are you paying attention to today? You've been quoted as, as early as I think 2014 or 15 talking about AI. So I'll give you credit for being ahead of the, the, the buzz there. Yeah, thank you. So what I'd say is, thinking back to some some of those discussions back in 2014, 15, whenever it was, I'd say that looking at AI, there's been, I think, a bigger promise than has been delivered in the world of fintech. And when I say that, I'm, I'm going to specifically carve out a little bit of the, the called the alpha-seeking use of AI. So there, there are investors using AI to try to find signals that, that say, oh, buy this stock or buy this sector or buy this factor or whatever it is. So, so I'm going to put those aside. But the, the more nuts and bolts use of AI for the nuts and bolts parts of Wall Street, there's been a lot of promise, but there's been, it's been very hard to find good applications for it. But that said, one thing I, I do think is really interesting is these large language models and the use of a chat GPT in the context of fintech world today. Some of the obvious use cases is we would have issues, for example, like we would not, we would, BlackRock had 4,000 or more clients, which means that there's probably 10,000 contracts that, that govern that. How do you even ask a question like which clients have a most favored nation status clause that could do blah, blah, blah. That literally would require hiring armies of lawyers to literally read through and find those things. Whereas I think today you could use technology to load all those contracts in and then just ask ChatGPT or the equivalent, uh, the question like which contracts have this kind of term in it and, and it would be child's play. I think that it could also be used to, I suspect, to do more real reconciliation work. We tried at the time to apply machine learning, we had a, a fairly robust engine that would, that would reconcile, compare uh, what, what happened at the bank versus what we thought should be happening at the bank. And so your goal is to identify differences. The computer could match a lot. It, it could match anywhere from 75 to 90%. And in some cases of very simple portfolios, it could be 98%. But there was always this extra that required a human. We even applied machine learning to see when the humans matched it, can we have an algorithm that will actually mirror the humans? And, that, and it, it never really worked. And so I do think that, that with the notion of what these large language models could do, there is the potential that it could learn in a different way and actually make much better recommendations on, on even operational kinds of things, again, beyond, beyond the investing process. And so I get pretty excited about those kinds of opportunities in, in the t to apply the technology in the fintech space. Do you think these technologies will be integrated within software systems and, and embedded within traditional software workflows? Or do you think they will express themselves in this chat-based interface that the early versions of these systems are built to use? 
It's a good question. I mean, I, I think it'll be both is the answer in that I think that the ability to use large language models as a software developer where it becomes in, an embedded part of the platform will be a toolkit that's available to all developers now. So they're going to build, we're, the world will build systems where that's just a core utility that's available inside the platform. But, it, but I suspect it will also be more um, uh, available in, in a more prominent and, and direct way. You could see a world where traders just read into a microphone, like bought 50 million two-year notes and can you allocate it pro rata across this and such portfolios? And a chat GPT equivalent would just do that. You just click a review button and you're done. So you'll it'll be more prominent, but it'll also, I think, be more embedded in platforms as well. So I think it's going to be a combination of the two. What are some examples on the sort of operation side where you think this type of technology could be useful? Where are some of the, the problems yep. where this, this is most directly applicable? So a couple of things that come to mind for me uh, as examples. So Aladdin is very good at producing daily risk for every portfolio, again, against benchmark and, and the like. But if you think about it, we can color code things and, and all that to identify areas of attention. But imagine that you could feed all that data into effectively a chat GPT and imagine that as a portfolio manager, you could get your daily briefing from a chat GPT, which would say, here's what's happening in the market. Here's things that given your trading style and given things you care about, these are things to pay attention to. And by the way, here, looking at your portfolios, there's a couple of portfolios that are really outstanding and it could kind of help almost look over all of the work that you're doing as a portfolio manager to help make sure that you're focused on the right things and assist you in, in, in those kinds of things. So that's one example that's more on the front end. If I think about almost on the back end, we produce in Aladdin daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly reports for clients. And invariably what happens is those clients want to hear the story of what happened in my portfolio? Why did it happen? How does that marry against what's happening in the market? So you can imagine just feeding in the client time series of all their portfolio um, information, you know, feeding into ChatGPT what's happening in the market and all that. And ChatGPT could do the write-up that today requires a person to write up the story about, hey, Mr. Client, here's what's happening in your portfolio. If you look at the attribution results, we did a great job because we overweighted corporate bonds and spreads tightened this quarter, but at the same time, we lost a little money in whatever, the asset-backed sector because blah, 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 whatever. So you could see a world where ChatGPT could do all of those kinds of write-ups for you. I mean, I think that could happen today out of the box, uh, but that's something that we did spend years ago. We, we sort of made a go at, is there something available at the time? And there, there really wasn't in hindsight, but today that seems like it would be a very readily useful case, which is more operational. And if you think about it, it's just, it's taking the, the portfolio manager out of the day-to-day the -day manager of the portfolio because they're having to do the write-ups. Well, ChatGPT could do a lot of that. Again, there'd be some, I would imagine, some review required to make sure ChatGPT is not making stuff up, which it does do sometimes, by the way. But I think those are two example use cases that, that, that come to mind that, that would be out-of-the-box uses today with, with that technology. Closing question, unrelated to financial technology. How do you spend your Saturdays when you're not working? <laughs> oh, Saturdays. Well, I'd say kids invariably take a good uh, chunk of that. We've been traveling a bit. But one of my hobbies is that I, I love to fly uh, airplanes. So a couple of years ago, 2016 or so, I started taking flying lessons and went on to get my pilot's license, my instrument rating, 
And so it's a fun hobby that, that is something that can take my mind off of all of this you know, crazy work stuff. And so it's certainly something that I enjoy for recreational purposes.